0: Well, let's um, let's go to the Lord in prayer together before we begin. Okay, let's pray. Father, we come before you now, Lord, and you know our need, you know our lack, Lord. You know the areas of our heart and of our mind that we so desperately need you to minister to, Lord. You know our lives altogether. Our days are before you, and Lord, we just ask that as we come to your word, that you would simply fill us now with the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Lord, that as we look at your word, that we would see wonderful things from your law. We pray for your spirit to be working powerfully among us, prophetically applying your word to our lives. And we ask, God, that you would give us mouth to speak, ears to hear what it is that you would say to us now. We look forward, Lord, with expectant hearts, Lord, knowing that when we come to the text of Scripture and when we come to the preaching of your word, we are here to hear from you so we ask God, speak to us now for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the book of Isaiah, uh, I wanted to read a quick scripture out of there to remind us of a very simple principle that this passage sort of uh, is going to take us in the direction of, and that is in Isaiah chapter 5, you are obviously, uh, you are familiar with Jesus' teaching on the vine and the branches. Well, obviously, Jesus was not making that up, but he got it from backgrounds like Isaiah 5. And let me read that to you now. It says, "'Let me sing now for my well-beloved, "'a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. "'My well-beloved had a vineyard and on a fertile hill. "'He dug it all around, removed its stones, "'and he planted it with the choicest vine.'" And he built a tower in the middle of it and he hewned out a wine vat in it then he expected it to produce good grapes but it produced only worthless ones isaiah chapter 5 is the background of Jesus' words regarding good fruit and jesus obviously applies that to himself that his father being the vine dresser, he is the vine, we are the branches. And just like in Isaiah chapter 5, he expects us to bear good fruit. That is to say that the Christian life is expected to be productive. We are expected to live under good works. Ephesians chapter 5, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we were saved for this very reason that we were saved for the purpose of good works that God had prepared beforehand so that you and I would simply walk in them. In other words, God has ordained good works for you and I to live them out, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. What does that look like? That looks like a life of fruitful obedience to God. That looks like a life that bears fruit in the kingdom, that is productive, that is active. You see, the Christian life is anything but boring if you're living in obedience to His commands. If you're bored in the Christian life, if you no longer find the Christian life exhilarating, if you no longer find following Jesus, walking with Jesus, and exhilarating, I would say, the most exhilarating lifestyle that you can have, it's because you are out of touch with what the sacrifice of Christ should have produced in your life. Everything about our life is to change. Jesus said, if you do not take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. If you will not, if God so wills it, that you are called to sell all of your possessions for the sake of the kingdom, you are not worthy to be his disciple. Jesus said, if you do not hate mother and father, if you do not hate the closest kin to your life, to your heart, you are not worthy to be his disciple. Now, when that type of radical change takes root in a person's heart, fruitful obedience to Jesus Christ will come. It is absolutely impossible that a heart that has been cleansed and saved by Jesus, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, issues forth no fruit, becomes stagnant in faith. Becomes dried up. Oh, we know what Jesus said. If you are a branch on the vine and you bear no fruit, you will be cut off and you will be cast into the fire. That's Jesus' way of saying, no fruit, no root. And so our fruit, our, our life of obedience or the lack thereof is serious business. It is the difference between whether or not you can expect resurrection life or not. It is a difference, as Scripture tells us everywhere, whether or not we will be justified by our works, as James says, in the manner in which James meant it. Which he didn't mean your works is the basis of your justification. Of course not. But your work is the evidence of your justification. Faith without works is dead. Dead. You can be as orthodox as the Apostles' Creed. You can be as orthodox as your favorite theologian. You can be as orthodox as your favorite confession and have no life of God in the soul. And this is what I believe Hebrews wants to deliver us from. Dead orthodoxy. Dead religion. When the book of Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus is much more what it's saying is that the fruit that it produces or the, 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 the byproduct of the cleansing power of Jesus is 10,000 times better than all the dead religion in the world that you can ever imagine. And so this is what I want to focus on with us today. I want to look at Jesus, our perfect sacrifice. Because we've already looked at Jesus' representation, the fact that he is our perfect high priest. We've already looked at Jesus' perfect redemption, the fact that he is our perfect redeemer. And now I want to look at Jesus' perfect renewal in the heart of man because he is our perfect sacrifice. But the author of Hebrews begins here in verse 13 by pointing out to us the insufficiency of external cleansing. Look at what he says in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. Now, you may need to spend some time breaking down that that long sentence, but basically what he is saying is this. The blood of an animal, what does it produce? It produces something. It cleanses the worshiper externally on the flesh level On the level of the body, because that's what he's talking about, and you only need to go back just a few verses to see that. Look back at verse 10. It says, since they, that is the old covenant sacrifices, they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until a time of reformation, until a time of redemptive upheaval, and God would really be throw the entire sacrificial system on its head by the ultimate sacrifice, by the Lamb of God. But what, God, what Hebrews is saying here is that just as certain as old covenant sacrifices accomplish something on the flesh level, the sacrifice of Christ accomplishes something far greater, much more, that comparative clause is important there, much more That's uh, what theologians call arguing from an a fortiori argument, the lesser to the greater. He goes from exclaiming one truth to a a truth that is so far superior to that truth that everybody agrees to. Oh, it is absolutely true that animal blood was necessary to cleanse the worshiper, to prepare the worship, the regulations of divine worship, so much so that he's going to go on to say, if you read chapter 9 here, he says that everything had to be cleansed with blood. And that's exactly why these old covenant sacrifices were necessary that's why they needed to engage in the sacrificial system and the offerings and the ashes of the heifer represent the burnt offerings that were offered to God as a soothing aroma but of course we know by now having read so much of hebrews that those things are simply typological of a greater sacrifice a greater offering a more a more soothing a more well pleasing sacrifice to God than that of of the blood of bulls and goats look with me at chapter 10 again this very important text as we go from old to new old covenant to new covenant old order to new order old priesthood new priesthood old high priest new high priest old sacrifice new sacrifice he says here in verse 5 therefore hebrews 10:5 when he comes into the world he says sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me in, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. Incredible. Incredible because these sacrifices for sin are things that God himself instituted. But what happened under the old covenant is something that cannot happen under the new covenant. And that is that you can be in the Old Covenant offering sacrifices to God, fulfilling all the Levitical requirements that were laid down for you, and you do it with a dead heart. You do it with no desire to actually love God, to worship God. No desire to have the life of God in the soul of man. You do it because you know how to perform these external things. You do it because you've learned the rituals. You do it because you've learned the formalities. You do it for symbolism, but you don't do it for salvation. That's the point. Of course, what this teaches you and I is that external religion is simply not enough. It is not enough, as our neighbors know that they can go to church on Christmas and Easter, and it doesn't change their life in the slightest. It is dead formality, dead religion, Dead performance, dead works, as it says here. And that means that with the new sacrifice that has come, there is a greater sacrifice that has been made, but that also comes with a greater warning. Look with me to Hebrews chapter 2. You remember this? This is how the new covenant works. It brings greater blessing, but also greater accountability now. Hebrews 2 verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, we put emphasis on the word much closer, and we put emphasis on the word we, because the word we symbolizes those that stand on the other side of the cross, those that stand in the shadow of what the cross has done. We, the new covenant believer, in this dispensation, in this epoch of redemption we stand to gain more and we stand to lose more because more light has been given to us we better pay attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it for if we if the word that was spoken through angels proved unalterable that's a reference to the law and every transgression and disobedience received a just Penalty, just look at the Old Testament and look at the judgments that God brought upon Israel time and time again for their disobedience. Just read Deuteronomy chapter 28, Leviticus chapter 26, and just read the warnings of breaking God's covenant, and you will see the dire consequences of what happened when the children of Israel disobeyed, broke the covenant, and spurned the living God. But what the New Testament is saying is that. How will we escape? You see this? Feel the weight of that. If we neglect so great a salvation. Now obviously what Jesus has brought is far greater. Jesus warned the Pharisees of the same thing. Of the insufficiency of external religion. You know what he told them? You can clean the outside of the cup. But if the inside of the cup is not clean, what good is it? Let me tell you about a pet peeve of mine. I hate going into a cupboard to pick up a beautiful clean cup on the outside and find that it's filthy on the inside. Usually Trish gets the end of that. Why is this cup in here? (laughs) And so it's because God wants to sanctify me, of course. (laughs) But that is a total contradiction. A cup that's clean on the outside and dirty on the inside, it's useless. It's worthless. You can't use that. And in the same way, someone that is cleansed on the outside and has all the appearance of what is required of them, and this is particularly significant today, brothers and sisters, for your children. Your children were on my heart almost the entire time that I'm studying for this message because it's so easy for these little, cute, beautiful sinners to fake everything, (laughs) right? Because that's what mommy and daddy want me to do. They want me to say that prayer at night. They want me to read the Bible. They want me to do Bible study. They want me to say, yes, sir, no, ma'am. They want the external performance of religiosity, but they can get so good, they become expert Pharisees. They've got everybody tricked, including mommy and daddy. I had a gentleman come up to me and said, I want you to baptize my my daughter. Well, how old is she? Well, she's eight. You know, I'm just not smart enough to see through an eight-year-old. They're really good. They, they can fool me. And so my personal practice is that I will wait to see much more of a mature age, of a mature manifestation of real Christianity. I'm not one of those that sets a date and says, well, you got to be 16 or you got to be 18. Some people do that. Uh, Mark Dever has a policy. He will not baptize you if you're not at least 18 years old. I don't have that policy, but I sympathize with what he's saying. Because I have baptized teenagers and stood in the waters of baptism and baptized them on the basis of their confession. And you talk to them and they know what they're talking about because they've been raised in the church. They can tell you what Calvinism is. They can tell you what the Trinity is. They can define justification by faith alone to you. And then you baptize them and in a couple years when they get a license and they get to go out on their own and they got a car, they fall away. And it's because the New Covenant never took root. It's because they were playing games with God their whole life. It is not enough to be externally cleansed. We need a more sufficient internal cleansing. And that is what the New Covenant brings. I want to show you the basis, the means, and the result of this. Okay, Let's go back to the text. Look back with me at verse 13. For the blood of goats and bulls that is insufficient so then verse 14 how much more will the blood there we go the blood of christ that's my first point the blood of christ you see the blood of christ is the basis of our new covenant cleansing There is no cleansing outside of the blood of Christ. And what does it cleanse? It cleanses our conscience. Now understand this, that in the New Testament, the reference to the Hema, the blood of Jesus, the blood, is essentially code, shorthand, for the cross, for the death of Christ. When you read a reference to the blood, it is referring to the death death of Christ, the cross work of Jesus Christ on that cross. That's what the word blood is signifying. It is a technical theological term in the New Testament that captures the very basis of our salvation, the blood. We sing about the blood. We have hymns about the blood because it's so efficacious. Let me read to you a slew of verses for a second. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Because it is through the blood that we have been both redeemed and been reconciled to God so that there is a, a, a remaining or a resultant peace with God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. You understand the Bible, the power of the exegesis of Scripture oftentimes is wrapped up in prepositional phrases. These little phrases, through, in, with, from, unto, into, these little prepositional phrases, I mean, the gospel depends on some of these prepositional phrases. And here, it is through the blood that we have been redeemed. Remember, redemption We talked about it last week. Redemption literally speaks of a release from ownership. You have been released from the slave master of sin, and you have new ownership now. You have a new owner because he has obtained you. He has procured what he purchased, namely God purchasing us through the blood of Christ. That is the purchase payment price. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself having made peace through the blood of His cross. There it is. Blood, cross. Essentially synonymous because they speak of the overarching reality now of course the only reason that we can have reconciliation the only reason that we can have redemption in Jesus Christ is because the blood also achieves propitiation and what is propitiation but the removal of the wrath of God from our lives the wrath of God from our lives the blood is the basis of not only for our internal cleansing but for the entirety of redemption look at romans chapter 3 verse 24 have been justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in christ jesus this is what he says god displayed him publicly as a propitiation in his blood you see that that's basis the basis of our propitiation is the blood Because it makes perfect atonement. This blood is the power to save. Has the power to save. But he also doesn't just give us the basis of it. He also gives us the means through which this happens. And the means through which this happens is through the supremacy of Jesus offering himself. Look at uh, verse 14 again. It says here that he... uh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered, that's a very important uh, verb, right? He offered himself without blemish to God. So it's not just that he possesses the power to save, but he also possesses the willingness to save us in the fact that he offered himself for us. He offered himself for us. The language that is used here is amazing because it speaks of Jesus who can cleanse us and through his offering up of his life which is a, a depicted here as sinless obedient life for our sin-filled lives he can redeem us because he offers himself to God without blemish And how does he do that? What is the nature of it? Well, the instrumentality of that is through the eternal spirit. So the spirit is at at work here. Now, obviously, there is no shortage of debate in terms of what does this phrase mean, eternal spirit. What is that referring to? Now, remember, in the Greek language, at least in this text, uh, the word spirit is not capitalized. Numa is not capitalized. So we need to decipher what spirit is he talking about, right? Is it a reference to Jesus' human spirit? Is it a reference to Jesus' deity, as some have taken spirit to mean, and eternal, Uh, some interpreters say that eternal speaks of his eternal resolve to obey and to suffer. Well, I take a more conservative, traditional, historic position, that of John Owen and some other ancient expositors and many today, which this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Notice that he doesn't say His Eternal Spirit. There is no personal pronoun there. It just says through the Eternal Spirit. Um, And so I think what is being said here is that The Spirit is that which accompanied Christ, enabled Christ, empowered Christ. For what reason? So that He can offer Himself without blemish. Without blemish. Now, the context of Hebrews 9 has been intensely eschatological in nature. It should not surprise us, therefore, to see Hebrews stress the word eternal, Right as the character of the Spirit. He is eternal, not only in His attribute, but also in His activity. He is eternal in His attribute and in His activity. It is the eschatological Spirit of God that accompanied the sufferings of the Messiah. Now, with this, I want to quote to you a slew of texts from Isaiah, Because where does this come from other than the Messianic passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, accompanying the third third person of the Spirit, uh, Jesus, and and, uh, uh, empowering Him, aiding Him in His obedience. For example, Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse... And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. I think I just said third and second members of the Trinity. You got it. I'm I'm caught up over here, okay? Sorry. <clears throat> Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There we go, third. <laughs> that just creeped up on me as I was reading this. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That spirit is messianic in nature. Isaiah 42, verse 1 and 2. This is an important text because Isaiah 42, verses 1 and 2, really are pointing us in the direction of the covenant of redemption. This is a classic text to show us not just the preexistence of Christ, but also the fact that Christ, the Spirit, the Father, are in Trinitarian covenant to redeem us. To redeem us. Behold my spirit. He says, whom I uphold, excuse me, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. In other words, that right there is talking about Jesus in his active and passive obedience. The fact that Jesus would live a perfect life and then die a perfect death for us. How? By the power of the Spirit. He had the fullness of the Spirit. It's what kept him from lashing out of course he has the moral righteousness in himself but accompanied by the spirit he has the he has the self-control that he doesn't lash out in sinful anger and consume all of his adversaries which he could have done very easily right but he didn't do it because he was first of all god second of all morally righteous third of all he was empowered by the spirit to obey Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now that's important because that is cited for us in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus says that verse is fulfilled by me right now. The Spirit of the Lord empowering Christ to live a perfect life in our place. Think of it, folks. Why is it important for him to say that, we were, that he was offered through the eternal Spirit he offered himself without blemish to God. Because you remember that the context of this also has to do with Christ's high priesthood. Look at verse 11 and back in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, and one thing we know already from the fact of high priest, go back to chapter 7 in Hebrews, is that he must be without blemish, right? Verse 26, it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted in the heavens. Why? So that he can make a once-for-all sacrifice. Who doesn't need daily like those other priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. It's a perfect parallel passage to what we're finding here in Hebrews chapter 9, that Jesus offered himself without blemish to God, impeccable righteousness before God, and an impeccable righteous sacrifice before God avails for our cleansing, our renewal. But what's the purpose? And let's come full circle with this. I love the practicality of this verse because... He doesn't just leave it at that, but notice where this goes. The purpose is this, to cleanse your conscience from dead works, and we can say and, to serve the living God. Sort of a two-fold purpose there, right? To cleanse your conscience from dead works, that is a reference to dead religion. That is a that, that is a reference to man being cleansed in the deepest part of who you are. You know what being cleansed in your conscience means? It means that you are cleansed to the degree that you know yourself to be forgiven. You know that you are forgiven. Look at uh, verse uh, excuse me Hebrews 10 verse 22, to show you this infallible assurance that accompanies the life of one who is genuinely forgiven. That doesn't mean that you will have constant assurance, meaning never broken, never hindered, never unmitigated with doubt or trial. or, Absolutely not. Who of us cannot testify that when the right trial, temptation comes our way, we are not Possibly thrown into the crucible of doubt and wavering where we doubt ourselves, we doubt what we believe, we doubt our assurance, we doubt our salvation, we doubt everything. You can be in that place. We sang the hymn by William Cooper, which is, there's a fountain filled with blood. Understand that William Cooper lived much of his life with bouts of horrific doubt. So much so that eventually he had to move in with John Newton because John Newton would minister to him deeply. One of the only ministers that could minister to someone like John uh, the, uh, William Cooper because he was so riddled with doubt. And he would go through all these elaborate arguments as to why election and predestination and salvation could be for others, but not for himself. And he would reflect too much on himself, right? Obviously, as the Puritans themselves would say, you know, One look to self. Ten looks to Christ. That's the Christian life. Don't sit. Christianity is not gazing into a mirror. It's gazing into the perfect law of liberty. If you want to be assured by God. But Hebrews 10 shows us this type of assurance that should result from being cleansed. It says here, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean. See the parallel passage there? Parallel, right? We are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What are we sprinkled with? The blood, right? From an evil conscience. And our bodies wash with pure water. You know what the author of Hebrews is doing there? He is essentially putting us back into the cultus of Israel, and he is In essence, showing us that through Jesus, we are ceremonially clean. We can approach. We can go into the tabernacle. We can go into the court. We can offer up praises, even though there's no more physical tabernacle. (laughs) Even though you're not going to go out of this church and put on priestly garments. But you are a priest unto your God nonetheless. But you have access not because you are ceremonially clean, but because you are Christologically clean. You are clean by Christ and by His blood. And that's why you can approach the throne of grace. So what does the cleansing power of Jesus do for us? It makes God look great. Look with me to Jeremiah chapter 33, a relevant passage because it's in the context of New Covenant theology. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 8, but the Bible says that the New Covenant will basically result in this being a designation, a sign of joy, praise, glory, so much so that Yahweh says it will be a new title for me. What will be a new title for me? Basically, the glory and the joy that comes from cleansing and forgiving a sinful people. It will be astounding. It will be for his renown. Jeremiah 3:8. I will clean, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. I will be, it, it will be to me a name of joy. Amazing language. Praise and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of the good that I do for them. And they will fear and tremble because of the good that all the peace that I make for it. This is what new covenant cleansing results in, the glory of God. And it presupposes that we live lives that now will glorify the God that cleansed us. That's the second purpose. Not only are we cleansed from dead religion, dead religiosity, dead performance, dead ritual, but we also have this other aspect of it is that it also is for the purpose of good works. See that? So that we serve the living God. The opposite of death is life. And you know what death is? Death stinks. Death is inability, irresponsive. And a dead body doesn't move. It doesn't produce anything. It doesn't do anything. Conversely, those who are made alive, they're made like the God they worship. He is a living God. He's not the God of the dead. He is a living God. Now, there is a there is a comfort and a caution here. The comfort when he says to serve the living God is this, that our God, the living God, is the true God. First Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1 brings the idea of life and truth together. Living and true one, that's what God is. First Thess chapter one verse nine. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God, right? To serve the living and true God. That is to say, that. No matter what anyone is worshiping outside the true and living God, they're worshiping a a dead God who is no God at all, and then they're worshiping a false God that cannot deliver on the promises that he makes. The terrorists that slaughtered 130 people the other night in Paris are serving a dead God that cannot deliver on the promises that he makes. And those promises are essentially carnal in nature that's another way that you can know the difference and oh isn't our religion so beautiful what is heaven for you and i endless sex no jesus says they neither are given in marriage or do they marry but you know what Islam teaches? You know what Mormonism teaches. You know what these false religions teach? They teach that what you will get in heaven is more sensual pleasure that you experienced here on Earth. That is a mark of a false religion. It is farce. That is a mark of a false religion. That what you will inherit as a Muslim as you go in into a concert hall and shoot as many people randomly as you can and then blow yourself up with a, with a bomb vested upon you? That what you're about to walk into is a sexual paradise? Is there anything more evil than this? I know we don't like to talk about it, but we have to. It's the world we're living in. And what's more evil, I mean, this is, when I saw the news of this, I, I promised myself I won't preach a whole sermon on this, but when I saw the news of it, I just thought evil upon evil, evil upon evil, wave of evil after evil. I mean, what do you think those people were doing in that concert hall? They were going to go listen to a band called the, what, the Death Angels? Or something? A band whose focus is essentially just as evil as the terrorists that killed them. They were there for do, to do nothing but evil. Just like the Bible says, they are committed to destruction. They are committed to evil. And that's what they were doing. Could there be anything more maddening in all the world that you went to a concert hall to indulge in nothing but evil and you got more evil than you bargained for? This world... This world needs the true and living God. And we have the true and living God. And as a result of having the true and living God, we are to serve the true and living God. Let's end on that note. This is why I began the sermon like I did. The Bible knows absolutely nothing about an inactive Christian life. Let that be a warning to us. The fact that we worship the true and living God is a comfort to us. We have the true God, the real God, the right God, the biblical God. At the same time, what that brings is an extremely serious, sobering caution to our lives. To, as Jeremiah says there in Jeremiah 5, 1-3, he expects it to bear fruit. And what do we have in our lives? Do we have fruit? Are we being productive? Can we honestly say that our ambition is to glorify God? Our ambition is to live such a life that whatever life you choose to live, whether it's ministry, whether it's preaching, whether it's full-time ministry, full-time staff at a church, whether it's to be a missionary, whether it's to be an evangelist, or whether it's to be a high school teacher, or whether it's to be an accountant, or whether it's to be a real estate agent, or whether it's to be a construction worker, or whether it's to be a chef, or whether it's to be whatever you're going to be, will you do it the way that Paul says to do it in 1 Corinthians 10.31? Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, and whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. I think that's what this passage helps us to do. re-examine. are we... As a result of having cleansed by the blood. Brothers and sisters, I have no deeper incentive for you today than the blood of Jesus that was shed, spilt, offered up on the tree for you to tell you get productive in the Christian life and use nothing as an excuse. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I've got five kids, I'm getting older in age, I'm thinking about retirement, just kind of settling down, let the young people do all the work now. I'm single and I'm just, my whole life revolves around finding my mate. I'm divorced, I'm just trying to recover, I can teach that single person some lessons. (laughs) Whatever it is, there's one thing that's real here in the Christian life, right? We are gonna go through every peak and valley that you can imagine. Jesus promised us, John 13 or sixteen thirty-three. "In this life you will have tribulation. Don't expect this life to be smooth and constant, and you're just going to coast right through this life, free of peril, free of suffering, free of disease, free of trial, free of economic collapse, free of, of, of cultural demise. If you expect to have that kind of life then you are looking at christianity in all the wrong ways but if you know come what may i am called to serve the living god in every season of life you're called to serve the living god and in every season of life it doesn't matter where you are you should through a healthy introspection ask yourself am i being productive in the kingdom of god Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 2. I think Titus, the book of Titus uniquely, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know among other books, but uniquely to me just really stuck out as a book where uh, Paul the Apostle is writing to a young minister and he's reminding him, good works, good works, good works, good works. You want to have a thriving church? You want to have a vital church? Teach your people to engage in good works. You don't think they had excuses in the first century? If we engage in those kind of good works, well, the Romans might discover us. And there goes our church, right? Book of Hebrews talks specifically to that issue where it says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. You were willing to be mistreated with those that were incarcerated. You were willing to go visit them in prison, even if it meant they're going to imprison you. (laughs) You want to talk about testing your fruit. (laughs) Titus chapter 2, verse 7. It says here, As a minister, verse 6, excuse me, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine and dignity, sound speech with beyond reproach so that opponents will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And what about the membership? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. There's a whole theology of good works right here. Remind them to be subject to their rulers, authority, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. You see that? How about chapter 3, verse 8? Chapter 3, verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Are you careful to engage in good deeds? Be honest with yourself today. Be honest, or are you so uh, just to yourself and unwilling to pour yourself out to others, right? Uh, there's so many ways that we can think about this. Verse 14 of chapter 3, same idea. He says, our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be un." fruitful see this is something we need to learn how to do you say well i'm not very good at it that's okay because titus just said there's a learning curve (laughs) and maybe you're not good at it maybe you're not the most mercy ministry minded person it would never occur to you to cook a meal for someone it would never occur to you to go visit someone who is in the hospital one of one of one of the members of the church It would never occur to you to go and help that person out with your yard work or whatever they have going on or financially bless a person. That's okay. You can learn to do that things. And hopefully in the body of Christ, there are enough examples of people doing those things that it will eventually rub off on you or it will convict you. This is so glorious for us. This is how we induce our hope. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's finish there because once again, in the mind of the author of Hebrews, all of these good deeds, serving the living God has a very practical and eternal application. And what I'm talking about, of course, is Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another for love and good deeds, not forsaking Our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. That's where it begins. You must be connected. You must be involved, and therefore you must be accountable. And then he says, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see what I'm saying by eternal? In other words, this is an eschatology that we live out. We live out the hope that we have. How? By stimulating one another to keep going, brother. Keep going, sister. Keep parenting in the right way. Don't give in. Don't spoil the child. Train the child. I know it's harder. Keep yourself pure. Don't give in to temptation. I know it's hard, but that's the direction we got to go. Get involved in the church. Stop isolating yourself. I know your personality is not conducive to it, but you need to do it for your own good. This is how being cleansed by the blood of Jesus, being cleansed from dead work, dead religion, and then being filled with zeal for serving the living God, this is what it looks like. There's no secret to the Christian faith, but the key component is faithfulness, obedience, faith working through love. That's the way that Paul worked it. That's the way he worded it. Let's ask God, To make us those kinds of people. That the blood of Jesus is not just a verse in the hymn. It is the reason we lay our lives down for one another. Amen? Father, Lord, we ask that you would infuse us with this zeal that we don't have. And sometimes we may have the zeal and we may not do it right. And so I ask that you would give us wisdom. That you would give us above everything Christ-likeness. And as we look at our glorious Savior who was crucified and offered himself up, what did he do but leave us the greatest example of selfless, sacrificial serving that we will ever see in the world? And so, Lord, I pray, please fill us with genuine worship. Help us to put dead religion to death in our heart. Oh, help us never to walk into this sanctuary ready to just go through the motions and do what's expected, even if we got to pause, even if we got to exit the building to pray and ask you to forgive us and to renew our hearts again. We ask that you would do this work for us, Lord. We don't want a church filled with dead religion. We want, a, we want a church that is filled with living stones being built up as a temple to the living God. It's in his name we pray, amen.